Good morning, church family. Um, so as we move into uh, this next part of Hebrews 11, uh, this hall of faith, if you will, we've been walking through this amazing chapter of the scriptures, um, and, and only two of the patriarchs kind of get a slow, uh, slow motion treatment of their life uh, in this text. I mean, we, we spent, a, there's like a verse on Joseph. I mean, you could, you could, we could talk about Joseph for a long time, uh, but it's, uh, the, the author of Hebrews slows down uh, on two people, and it's Abraham. Um, and Moses. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament um, and even how the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament, you, you can understand why these two figures um, are so important as we, consider, uh, as we consider what God has done and, his, and this story of faith. So uh, we're gonna be in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. Uh, there's, there's a few things I think that are harder to escape uh, than a soft, warm bed. Um, on a cold morning, especially. Like, like maybe quicksand is harder. Is quicksand like a real thing or is that just in movies? I don't even know if that's real, uh, but that would seem like that'd be harder to escape, but I, it may not be real. Um, and, but, but as soon as you get out of bed, like you know that, that that's over. Like there's no going back. Like maybe if in the middle of the night, if you gotta go to the bathroom, like you run and then you come back just so that you can kind of reestablish what you were, what you were working on there and that warm uh, cocoon that you had. Uh, but it's, it's, you've been building it up all night, like your body heat under the covers, it's wonderful. But then as soon as the covers come back, like that's, it's done. And if you're within 30 minutes of the alarm going off, you might as well just forget about it because you're never gonna get back to where you were. Uh, but I'll say this though, there are a lot of good things that will only happen if you get out of bed. Uh, the cost is high, <laughs> relatively speaking, but every day as the rational adults that we are, we make the decision uh, that it's worth it. The time has come that I gotta pull the covers back, I gotta swing the legs out, I gotta stand up, bear the cold, and move on. Uh, and today, in our first of two weeks going through the life of Moses, we're gonna see that there was great cost to follow the Lord and that there is now for us great cost and great comfort that must be left to follow him by faith. And so as we look to our brother Moses, uh, we're gonna see four things. Number one, the faith of parents. And number two, that faith is costly. Number three, we'll see the reproach of faith. And then lastly, we'll see the better Moses. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so dependent on your spirit. We will not hear with open ears. We will not perceive with minds that are awake. We will not, uh, we will not take to heart with hearts that are soft apart from the work of your spirit in us to make us ready to hear, to make us ready to apply, to make us able to live out. And so, Father, we ask this morning for your spirit. We ask that he would be with us as we hear the scriptures and that he would, as he always does, that he would point us to our God and our Savior, Jesus. And that the name of Jesus would be lifted high in our hearts and in this room, even as we look together at the scriptures. So would you do this for us? We need your help and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So number one, uh, the faith of parents. So starting in verse 23 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. 
Uh, Moses was uh, and is an exceptional figure in the Bible. Uh, and his background story is wild. Uh, and in fact, every, every, every birth story, it doesn't, not just the ones in the Bible, but every birth story is wild, right? Like it has its own like it, it, flavor. Uh, it, those of you who have multiple children, you go, yeah, every one has its own little thing. You remember where you were, like when the water broke. Um, you remember uh, when those contractions hit. Probably the women remember more than the men. Uh, you, you dads, you remember that light that you had to run because there was somebody in the passenger seat just saying, run it, run it, run it. There's nobody on the road, just go. Um, and then there's, then there's the story of the birth itself, right? There's maybe the cord was compressed because of the way the baby was positioned, or maybe the doctor was running behind and you, Hey, slow down. Um, Hey, and maybe baby needed some assistance. Maybe, maybe some of you spent days or weeks, um, in the NICU. Having a baby is both exhilarating and emotional. Um, there's really no more drama needed. Like it's got its own built in drama. But in the Bible, and we've seen this as we've walked through Hebrews 11, uh, we've seen several things that up the ante even more in these birth stories. Uh, You remember Eve's first son, Cain. Uh, I mean, she had never seen another human give birth, so there was a lot of drama already there. And then the expectation that that there would be an offspring to come. They were waiting. They were excited that he was coming. Um, And then Abraham and Sarah, right? They were old. They had no business having babies. Uh, She'd been barren her whole life, and now here we have a wrinkly grandma and grandpa uh, welcoming a baby into the world. And then a couple of weeks ago, we see Isaac and Rebecca and they had twins. And instead of, you know that feeling, I don't know the feeling, um, but um, those who've had children, uh, moms, you know the, the feeling of, of a kick in the, in, the, in the belly when the baby's in there, right? And, and, but, but she actually had two babies in there and they were kicking each other. Uh, there were, the, the Lord said, there were, there were two nations at war within you. Um, and, and then as they, as they come out, one is grabbing the other's heel. Uh, that's, that's more excitement than you want in your birth story. Um, and then now we come to the birth of Moses. Remember, Joseph's family had come to Egypt as, as a relatively small group, right? There was, there was only about 70 of them, and, and they had, but they had grown so large. The Israelites had multiplied so much uh, to the point that the Pharaoh was beginning to become concerned. Uh, these people are going too fast, man. If another, if another country were to come in and attack us, the Israelites might team up with them and, and help to destroy us. And, but he didn't want to wipe them out because they were, they were a great help to him. He was using them as slave labor. And Pharaoh said, you know, if I can, if I can keep them from gaining strength unhindered, then it'll be to my advantage. And so, so what, he, what he did was he said, I'm gonna let the baby girls live but I'm gonna wipe out the baby boys. And, and, and the thinking would be that the, that the baby girls would eventually marry Egyptians and that they would subsume the Israelite nation in that way. Uh, this was the way to squash a nation. Uh, more dastardly though, I think we can see this as, as the ongoing mission of the devil himself. The seed of the serpent seeking to squash and, and snuff out the seed of the woman. Now the seed of the serpent present in Pharaoh himself and, and seeking to squash out the future Messiah. How will I thwart God's plans, Satan asks. I'll crush any male offspring that come from Israel. And so how does Pharaoh accomplish this? He, in Exodus 1, we see that he calls on two women, uh, two of the most low at the bottom of the totem pole uh, women of society, two Hebrew midwives. And that's, that's how low Pharaoh is stooping here, this powerful ruler. And he said, I'm gonna make the, these powerless women do my dirty work. 
Ah, but he didn't know that they feared God more than they feared him. They didn't just refuse outright. No, they agreed. And then they deceived Pharaoh. They lied to him. They told him, you know, these Hebrew women, they just, they just keep having babies before we get there. They're just so fast. We don't know what's going on. And, and I love that we know what their, their names are. We know that their names are Shipra and Pua. And, and the, the Bible, we never even really get a name of this Pharaoh, like what his name is, uh, but we know their names. And Pharaoh's furious. He's looking around going, hey, I see more baby boys. I see new Hebrew baby boys. They're not, they're still here. Why are they alive? These midwives are supposed to be killing the babies for me. And so he tells, he says to his whole nation, you know what I want you to do? Every Egyptian, I want you to, if you see any Hebrew baby boys, you know what I want you to do with them? I want you to throw them into the Nile. It's sickening. Throw them into the Nile. Keep the daughters. Let the daughters live. It's, it's, It's depraved. And so now here comes our hero Moses, but he's, he can't be a hero yet, right? Because he's a baby. Babies aren't heroes. Uh, but this, except Jesus. Jesus was a baby hero. Uh, <laughs> but this part of the story isn't really about Moses anyway. We've got this hall of faith here, this whole train of people who are being lauded as heroes of the faith. And, and what do we get? We don't even get Moses' parents' names here yet. We'll get that later in a genealogy. But we know that they are those listed and the ones who are living by faith. This is their story, their faith. So we had the Hebrew midwives deceiving Pharaoh, fearing God, and now Moses' parents doing the same. They're defying Pharaoh. See again in verse 23. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Um, so this is big hero stuff from fairly anonymous parents. And, and, and I would, I guess, challenge you who are parents here, how will you fear God as you raise your babies? Who will you worry about most? Will you fear the culture's edicts about your, your children? Will you worry what people think when your kids are weird? If they don't participate in everything the culture says they need to. If you raise them to think biblically, instead of being informed by everything the world says they should know. As they grow, I'm not suggesting that we serve as the, a, a church full of helicopter parents. No, the world doesn't need that. Uh, but will we be savvy parents? Will we be savvy about the flaming arrows that are aimed right at our children? Will we seek to protect them? Will we seek uh, to in- instruct them so that they might escape Parents, our fear of God, our worship of God, that's what guides us. Not our fear of what friends think, not our fear of what family members think, not our fear of what school administrators think. So what did they do? They hid Moses for three months. It says, because they saw that he was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. I, I, I love this, that Moses, is, who's writing here, says, I was a pretty baby. That's basically what he just said here. <clears throat> I was a very pretty baby, and they, they saw that. But really, I, I, don't, I don't think, even though our, our, our text uh, translates this as beautiful, I really think it means healthy, healthy and strong. They saw that he was a healthy baby, strong baby. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, my, my babies were all beautiful. Most, many babies are not, but mine were. Um, they, uh, there, there, was, there was a conehead issue that we had to work on, but that got worked out over time. 
Um, and uh, no, we, but I, I love it. Moses is calling himself beautiful. Again, this is, he's, he's a strong baby. They see this. But I think more than, more than what they saw when they looked at Moses, the bigger motivation is that what they feared. They feared God. They didn't fear the king. And so they said, we'd rather die. We'd rather die than disobey God. We'd rather die than to take this precious life that God has given us. They agreed with Jesus when he said, he said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. And so they took, they took to heart that God was the one who was in charge, not Pharaoh. And as a side note, they, didn't, they also didn't attack the king, right? There was no coup that was, that was plotted by the parents of Hebrew children. They didn't wage war. No, by faith, they were savvy. The midwives would deceive Pharaoh they, and then the Hebrew parents, they would hide their little boys. But I, I think the reality is certainly many children perished. Uh, and, and I think it is, it is telling and, and, and their trust in God is, is, is borne out in that God is the one who wages war. He is the one who brings vengeance. And Pharaoh's edict would come right back on his head and we'll see it, but it won't be tomorrow. It won't, be, it won't be in a few years. It's gonna be about 80 years before this edict comes back on Pharaoh's head and his family will see its children die. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So then as he grew, likely of, as further means of hiding Moses, as he was three months old, it becomes harder and harder to hide a child. Uh, they, they didn't put him in, they didn't throw him in the Nile. They put him in a basket and they covered it with pitch so that it wouldn't sink. And they sat him in there um, and they hid it by the, by the side of, of the, the river in the reeds. And, and sure enough, Mo, Moses' sister is keeping watch. And sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river. And by God's providence, what should Pharaoh's, what should Pharaoh's daughter have done? She should have picked Moses up, threw him into the, into the water and been done. But no, she picked him up and she decided to keep him. She decided to, to bring him into her own household. And, and Moses' sister is there, Miriam is there to say, hey, would you like me to go get a Hebrew uh, mother to come and nurse this child? And she said, yes. And so, so Moses' mother by God's providence comes and raises and, and is able to nurse Moses uh, going forward. And, and I, I think this is so incredible that, that through this act, through this work, uh, God gave Moses knowledge of who he was, knowledge of his nationality, of his family. Not only that, but Acts 7 says that as Moses grew, that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Pharaoh's people were training up the very person who would destroy them. This is, I mean, this is incredible. This is like amazing Bible stuff, Right? Uh, like the Bible is, this is an incredible, this is like a spy story. This is like Captain America being raised by Hydra and then turning on him and destroying him. It's like, it's like Bonhoeffer, who was a child of Germany, turning on the Nazis. Uh, this is like the lion cub being trained up and then turning on the tamer. This is like the best spy sort of stuff around. This is such, such an amazing story that God would work this way. And just like Joseph, what, what, what Pharaoh meant for evil God had intended for the good of his people. I love, I love the animated movie. If you haven't seen it, The, the Prince of Egypt, um, so fantastic. If you're not into like, 
cartoon musicals, then maybe you won't like it. Um, but it's, I, it's, to me, it's one of my favorite film adaptations of, of Moses' life. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it doesn't nail the biblical account on every single point. So if, you know, you'll catch some things you go, I don't know if that's quite right. Uh, but one of the depictions I think that's really interesting is the depiction of Moses' life, uh, which is, it, it almost seems as though in the musical that, that his, his life, he's like, he's just part of like the small intimate family with Pharaoh, um, which is a really interesting thought. And I think, uh, I, I, I don't know that we know how tight Moses was with Pharaoh. Um, but tradition says uh, that, he was at, that he was at least very well connected to the family, um, that he was raised not as this outcast Jewish child being raised in Egypt, but, but no, he, you know, he, was, he was educated just as an Egyptian would be. He was, he was raised and educated in wisdom, powerful in speech and action, which is crazy because just think of just a few years later, um, Moses is a young man when we're hearing this about him, but when Moses is, uh, is a little older, when he's 80 years old and God is calling him, what does Moses say about him, his abilities? He says, I can't talk. I, I don't, I'm, my, I'm slow of speech, he says, um, which is according to Acts 7, not true. And, and now maybe he's older at this point and Moses feels ill-equipped, and, but I think more, more likely what, what we see with Moses is Moses just didn't wanna do it. Moses didn't want to do what God was calling him to do. And he was throwing out every excuse that he could come up with. Um, so Moses seemingly has everything we're seeing. Now, number two, faith is costly. Something happens here. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So, so Moses grew up in the house. He's in the house and we don't get a lot of description of his life there. But Hebrews 11 says that he had a life of treasure and wealth. And as a member of Pharaoh's family, he would have had at his disposal every possible pleasure that you could imagine. And, and not only pleasure, but respect, power, education, everything is his, everything at his feet. And what does this kind of sound like? Who does this kind of sound like? It sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? They, he, Joseph rose to power in Egypt. He, he's well healed like Joseph, well, and he's powerfully positioned like Joseph, but something is very different here. Under the Pharaoh of Joseph, God's people had been rescued. They had been saved from famine. They had been given refuge. They'd been given a place, a land to prosper. But under the Pharaoh of Moses, God's people are being brutalized. They're being enslaved. Children are being murdered. Egypt had been a refuge for God's people, but it had become a prison keeping them from the land that God had promised them. So this is where Moses' life faith really begins. And I think this all seems very obvious to us because we just know the story. If you've been around God's word very long or if you've been around the church, you've probably heard this story. Maybe you haven't. So I, I, for you, I think this is probably great. It, it's, it's new, you're experiencing it fresh. But for many of us, I think we, we're, yeah, of course, we know what Moses, who Moses is. He's the deliverer. He's the guy who's gonna you know, lead him out of Egypt. Uh, and, and, but, but Moses had a choice. Stay warm in the comfortable bed that is Egypt or walk out, leave it all behind. He could fully assimilate into Pharaoh's household and reap the, the pleasures for, for his life. Or he could remember the stories of his people. He could remember the things that his mom whispered to him when he was young. He could remember that he was of Hebrew blood, then that God had a home for his people and that it's not here. A land of promise awaits. 
And so Exodus 2 tells us that Moses, when he was 40 years old, that he went out to his own people and he observed their labor. And I don't know if this means this was the first time that he had seen these things. Maybe he was totally unaware. Maybe he had forgotten the stories his mom had told him. Maybe, maybe he was aware, but he had just never seen it in person. But all we know is that when he goes out, what does he see? He sees the pain of his people and he sees an Egyptian man strike a Hebrew slave. And Moses steps in and he, he struck the Egyptian and he killed him. And he, he killed him and he hid the body. And I, I think that shows us that Moses is not even, I, I think, confident in what God's called him to do yet. Uh, and, and the behavior even there is not praised by scripture, but it's our first clue that Moses has within him this righteous anger that's bubbling up. And that those who treat God's people with disregard should fear God. And so this turn in Moses has begun. Verse 24 and 25 tell us he could have stayed home. He could have enjoyed the pleasure of sin or he could walk by faith into the wood chipper that his, that his people were in. And by faith, uh, he followed the Lord. Verse 24, by faith, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he gave that up. He, he shed that title. And in verse 25, he chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He gave up everything, his power, his position, his relationships. Faith, faith is costly. Following God is costly. Have you had to make a choice like that? When the time comes, will you make that kind of choice? I think we do each other and one another a, a, a disservice uh, when, we, when we paint a picture of the Christian life of faith uh, that's one of only happiness. One that is one of only blessing and, and prosperous relationships. Why? Because that's just not true. Yes, there, there, are, there are so many blessings of following Jesus. There, there is peace. There is forgiveness and security. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But the reality of Jesus' words that in this world you'll have trouble, those, those, that reality should ring in our ears, both as a warning and, and as a comfort. Because the temptation is always going to be there to turn back, to give up, to just go along with the life of ease in Egypt or in America. Like in Pilgrim's Progress at the beginning, right? Uh, when when uh, he's leaving to, to walk out and to follow the Lord, his family is going, what are you doing? Why would you leave? Why would you leave our city? And, and everything's comfortable here. Why would you go? And at, at the end of all their, all their discussions, what does Christian have to do? He just has to plug his ears and run out crying. Eternal life. Because he, know what he, seek, he knows what he seeks. He's seeking a better place, a lasting city, just as Abraham was. I'm so, I'm so excited that we're baptizing. I think like 15 or 16 people today. Um, what a Praise God for that. And we talked about this last week in our baptism class, uh, that in the early church, baptism was really a season of, of, of seeing whether people would stick it out. Why? Because the early church leaders knew the minute you step into the water, the minute you go out to be baptized, people are going to see you and opposition is going to come. The gospel that you are declaring, it will be hated. It will be mocked. And the early church, they were getting it from these new believers. They would get it from Jewish leaders and then they would get it from the pagan, their pagan neighbors and rulers. 
In fact, oftentimes these, these, these people being baptized in the early church, they were baptized naked, um, which is not what we're doing today. Um, we, we, we talked about it in our, one of our elder meetings and we just decided to go against it. Um, but they would be baptized naked or wearing very little, like a white robe. Or, and, and that sounds crazy to us. Men would baptize men, women would baptize women. Uh, but it, it was crazy. But what they were saying was, I'm leaving everything. There's nothing. The old me is dead. I'm leaving it all behind because the cross is ever before me. Though none go with me, I still will follow. They were following Jesus and leaving it all behind. And so they would go in even with no clothes. And and if you aren't convinced of that one thing, then you won't stick it out. When opposition comes, you must not be simply convinced that Jesus is your key to a better life or that Jesus is your get out of hell free card. A lasting and changed life doesn't happen simply because you think, oh, my family will be proud of me if I do this. This is what my parents did and this is what they, I know that's what they want me to do. Now, those kind of motivations, they'll crumble. When you lose your job or your freedom, when you are publicly mocked or you lose status in the eyes of your peers, the promise of, man, being with Jesus is gonna be all sunshine, that's gonna fade because it's not true. When even your own family members think you're crazy for following Jesus, when you have aunts or uncles or brothers or sisters who say, we don't really want you at the family gatherings anymore. When they go, we don't, we don't want somebody who has that closed-minded of a view who says that Jesus is the only way. We don't want that. We don't want those bigoted Christians around. Weak-hearted motivations for following Jesus won't, won't last that. They'll buckle under that kind of pressure. Spurgeon said this about Moses. Spurgeon said, oh, Moses, if you must needs join with Israel, there is no present reward for you. That's a promise right there. No reward. You have nothing to gain, but all to lose. You must do it out of pure principle, out of love to God, out of a full persuasion of the truth. For the tribes have no honors or wealth to bestow. You will receive affliction and that is all. You will be called a fool and people will think they have good reason for doing so. Moses' choice is one that we all must make. Will we pursue the treasures of this world? Or will we receive the affliction that is found amongst those who fellowship in the cross of Jesus? Now you've got to be convinced. You must be convinced of one thing, that, that only Christ is your treasure. It's the same thing that Hebrews says was the motivation of Moses, which leads us to number three, the reproach of faith. Verse 26 says, for he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Is life with Jesus, is loving Jesus, is knowing him, is treasuring him, is that better to you? Is that better than all of your other dreams? If everything else that you wanted in this life happened, but you didn't have Jesus, would you be content with that? Moses faced the same sort of counterfeit gods that many of us are lured by. Comfort, wealth, pleasure. They call out to us. 
The admiration of our peers calls out to us. And whatever your God of choice, like that nice warm bed, if you're not convinced of the treasure of Jesus, you'll just hit snooze and you'll roll over and you'll stay. You'll keep partaking. Moses considered the reproach of Christ to be greater. Now you may be going, wait, I don't know my Bible that well, but I know that Moses did not know Jesus. Uh, I just have a slight timeline in my head and know that, that Jesus came a little bit later. Uh, what, is this, what is this saying? Um, I think it's as simple as this, is that it's Moses trusted in the Christ to come the Messiah to come, the one who would be the deliverer. Moses was going to be a deliverer, but he trusted. Why, why was he able to press on and go forward and leave everything behind? Because he trusted in the Messiah to come. He trusted in the one who would deliver and he would suffer the reproach of that deliverer. Moses knew what it would mean to renounce his status in Egypt. There had been parties and food and power, but there would now be reproach and wandering and pain. And there would be no going back. In fact, I think to say that it's, it's worth giving up worldly treasure to follow Jesus, it almost doesn't quite cover it. Like, because I think for some of us, we might say, I could do that. I don't really treasure this. I don't even like this world that much. Um, so I could at least, you know, I don't, need, I don't need a lot of things. I'm a pretty modest person. I just, I, you know, I'm good. Me and Jesus, that's good. I, I, I don't need anything else. But I think it has to be, it's, I think it's more than that that we're called to. Uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't need treasure in this life. We could say that. But for Moses, following Jesus meant you gotta be willing to lose it all and that means you lose respect. These are things that we don't think of when we think of the treasures of this world. Respect, friendship, freedom. I think it's as simple as a math equation here that, that we're seeing uh, about Moses. The equation of reproach, that's not a technical term, um, reproach, the hatred of others, plus the glory of Jesus is greater than the treasures of this world, plus the love and esteem of those of the world. How much are you willing to lose in living for the name of Jesus? Have you considered the cost? Have you considered the reproach have you considered the disgrace? Is Jesus greater to you than those things? I'll ask it this way. Let's, so what are some things that you can think of that, for which people are, are willing to bear reproach? Because it's happening all the time, right? Uh, many of us are making daily decisions that we are, willingly, are willing to bear reproach for. What, what will I suffer scorn and broken relationships for when I take a stand or hold a position? And I'm not talking about your love for the Aggies. Uh, that's, you've all clearly embraced that scorn. Um, this is real scorn. Um, we've, we've, we've definitely seen, we've seen this kind of thing happen, right, through, through COVID. But it's not new to COVID. Um, it's not unique. People will willingly suffer for their positions. Surely you had friends uh, in this last political season who were willing to suffer for their political positions to the point of losing friends, to the point of losing respect, to the point of losing uh, relationships. People were willing to suffer for their position on masks. I, I, it's funny, I, I remember I, you probably, if you're on social media at all, which if, if, if you're not, then don't do it. Um, but if you are, uh, then you've probably seen someone say something like, 
If you hate me because you disagree, if, if, if you hate me because you disagree about, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, if, basically the, the line is, if you disagree with me about fill in the blank, then you might as well unfriend me right now. Seen that? You might as well unfriend me right now. It's like a badge of honor almost. If you hate me that much, if you, if you disagree with me about this, I don't even want to be your friend. And I, and I, would, I, would, just, I, would, I would just appeal to you. May that not be true of us. As Christians, may we be marked by a sort of convictional gentleness that says, I love you, even if we're different on this. Even if you are lost and hate me for it, I love you. But are we willing to bear the sort of reproach that will come when we hold firmly to the way of Jesus? Are you willing to be considered a sellout by your conservative or your progressive friends because following Jesus doesn't align perfectly with what the position that they hold? What about when you talk to your Muslim coworker or your agnostic neighbor who says, you know, you, your truth is good for you, but, but my truth, you know, I, I have a different truth. And when you say, you know, I really love you, but there is only one hope for eternity. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. There's only, there's only one trust that, that is, that's reliable. You need the cross of Jesus. You need his empty tomb. Have you determined in your heart in that moment that the glory of Jesus is worth the reproach of being called intolerant, of being called closed-minded? Is Jesus worth being unfriended for, being called hateful, being told that your views of, of gender or sexuality are on the wrong side of, of history? Is, is the reproach of Jesus worth these things? J.C. Ryle had this great quote about the faith of Moses. He said, faith told Moses that affliction and suffering were not real evils. They were the school of God in which he trains the children of grace for glory. The medicines which are needful to purify our corrupt wills, the furnace which must burn away our dross, the knife which must cut ties that bind us to the world. And then he goes on, Marvel not that he refused greatness, riches, and pleasure. He looked far forward. He saw with the eye of faith kingdoms crumbling into dust, riches making to themselves wings and fleeing away, pleasure leading onto death and judgment, and Christ only and his little flock enduring forever. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is sweeter than any degree of acceptance that you may receive here. The things that look like they will satisfy now, they are, but things with the eyes of faith that we might see are crumbling. They are dying. They are going away. In the course of eternity, they will be but dust. So let's be good neighbors here. Let's seek justice for the oppressed. Let's offer the kindness of Jesus to all that we engage with. But when we do, the very gospel that we hold to, the, 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 the risen Jesus that we talk about, it will bring reproach. The gospel itself is offensive. You can be gentle and it will still bring reproach. It will, people will bring hate to your doorstep. And like Pastor Barry said last week, there may be a day when just simply saying true things about God's word may cost you. It costs you financially, may even cause you to lose opportunity or freedom. And does the glorious reward of Jesus outweigh even the worst hatred? 
Soon the full weight of the wrath of Pharaoh is gonna come down toward, toward Moses. But by faith, Moses knew that even the worst hatred by the most powerful king on the planet paled in comparison to the coming blessing, to the coming Messiah. But even Moses' faith is just a foretaste. That brings us to number four, the better Moses. I think the crushing weight of a story like this is, you know, how can I know if I'm truly willing to suffer the high cost of faith? Like, am I truly ready to bear the sort of reproach that, that Moses bore, that, that these heroes of the faith bore before me? Jesus said to the rich young ruler, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor. Like, am I like him? How will I know if I've sufficiently treasured Jesus? How will I know if I've done enough? And I, I think this is where the gospel is such sweet, sweet relief. Not that uh, we might stop properly counting the cost, which we must, but that we can never get to the point where we say, I've done enough for Jesus. I've treasured him enough. No, instead we need, rather than to try to treasure him enough, we need to look to what he did. Look to him. We need to listen to him. Jesus is the true and the better Moses. We'll see it even more next week when Moses leads his people from the grip of Pharaoh. But let's look closely at Jesus for just a minute as we end today. If you remember the story of, of Moses' birth and Jesus' birth, you remember they, their lives started pretty similarly, didn't they? With parents that were having to shield them from the king's edict. And Moses, after a lifetime in the house of royalty, he left the comforts of the palace of Egypt to be with his people. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus did something better. He, he emptied himself. He set aside glory and worship, not of an earthly palace, but of a heavenly throne, Philippians 2, so that he might come to his people. Moses identified with the people that had been enslaved by Pharaoh. Those were his people. And in fact, he became one of them so that he might rescue them from the dominion of, of such a cruel taskmaster, but Jesus, the God of the universe, he became one of us. He took on flesh. He came in the likeness of humanity so that he might rescue us from, the, from our enslavement to the devil and to the evil powers from the dominion of that cruel taskmaster that is our own sin. And why did Moses do it? We read earlier, for he considered the reproach of, uh, for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking to the reward. But why did Jesus do it? He endured the cross. He despised its shame. He bore that reproach. He was hated. He was killed. He finished the task. Why? For the joy that was laid before him. The joy, the pleasure of the father. For the, for the joy of reconciling men and women and children to himself and to the Father. For Jesus, the treasure of pleasing the Father was worth enduring even the sting of death. And I don't want to give too much away, but Jesus is the true and better Moses who will bring us through the waters. He will lead us through death itself and he will lead us into the promised land. Will you follow him? 
Is he enough for you? Will you leave it all behind so that you might join him as he takes you home? Let me pray for us. Father, we need spiritual eyes. We need your spirit at work in us to truly see what is real. To see this earth for what it is, to see this to see those things around us, those possessions that we own for what they really are. Future victims of moth and and rust. And God, would we see the solid gold inheritance that is ours, that you offer to us, the treasure that is ours in Christ. And may that be what we cling to. May that precious gospel grant us peace and comfort and steadfastness May you grant us faith to cling to that and not to everything else. So Father, we need you to do this in us. It's, it's a work of your spirit. It really is. We, we want to follow you, but, but even, even so in our flesh, uh, we fail. So Father, we thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that your spirit empowers us. Would you help us now uh, to, to confess whatever it is that we have, have, have said is valuable to us, whatever it is to us that is, is, is of such grand importance that we would not follow you. And would we, would we just rest this morning in the fact that it is that you are it? Would we set our eyes upon you? Would we submit ourselves to your will? And would we follow? So we love you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.